everybody just kind of knew who they were because they were who they were related to. They were they knew who they were by their position in society. They knew what they were going to do because they're going to do what their parents did. And now, just in this last step, we have to decide all that for ourselves. We have to create ourselves moment to moment. And our world is so complicated that we have to keep recreating ourselves. And that's why all these people keep coming back to us as teachers to learn more, to read this themselves, to answer those questions. And then also in this last step, something there's a whole other set of things that have gone on that I haven't mentioned yet. The world's deadliest wars of all time, the environmental problems, energy problems, inequality problems, all kinds of problems that meet three other big questions that are on everybody's mind. Just who are we? What are we going to do? What are we going to make it? So when I look at this walk, and we're standing here at the end of it with these six questions in mind, it starts to seem like what we do is actually really, really important. Helping people figure out who they are, what they're going to do, and whether or not they're going to make it. And also, really serving the world in those ways. That's how I see my pride. And I hope you guys sort of see that that way as well. Um, I want to think about this clicker I set down there, right? I mentioned that on the one side, you know, there's no, there's no worldwide web yet. There's no iPhone, iPad, Android, nothing like that. On the back side, it's all there. And I want to take you into a moment where uh, 20 years ago, Seymour Papert was sort of just on the back side of the clicker, right before the World Wide Web. And he was with a bunch of four-year-olds. This is a famous MIT professor. And he's hanging out with a bunch of four-year-olds in preschool. And one of the preschool students asked, how did giraffes sleep? And nobody knew, including Seymour. As early as Seymour Papert did, he didn't know. So all these kids start brainstorming, like, wow, oh, you know, like, how could they sleep? They start thinking about maybe they're putting their head on, you know, on a branch or something like that. And, Maybe they're just laying down, but how would they get back out? There are all these questions and questions after questions just bubbling up. And Seymour doesn't know the answer, but then later he goes home and he has this wall of books, encyclopedias, books, all kinds of stuff, and he pulls down an encyclopedia and he reads and he figures out how they're asleep. And as he's doing this, he's thinking, you know, it's too bad a lot of these students don't have access to this kind of library that I have, but someday they will have these devices that will allow them to point and gesture and do whatever they want and very intuitively bring up videos and photos and all these things of giraffes sleeping all of them, you know, from around the world and then they'll know how giraffes sleep. And of course, that's true. So, uh, you know, I was in the middle of nowhere, Illinois a couple weeks ago thinking about Seymour Packer 20 years ago and realizing that that knowledge machine exists, right? It's, the, it's your phone, it's your iPad, whatever it might be. So I pulled out my phone in the middle of nowhere and I decided to figure out how to draft sleep because Seymour doesn't actually tell you about draft sleep. So I pulled out my phone and looked up on YouTube and I got 56,000 videos about drafts. And then I decided, you know, let's, you know, maybe videos aren't for everybody. So you can go to Google Scholar and you can look up a Google Scholar article and you get this article that says it analyzes uh, 152 nights and five adults and, and three other drafts. So eight drafts over 152 nights and they figure out that they have a paradoxical sleep which was recognized by the peculiar positioning of the head on the croup. Now, I don't actually know what a croup is, but then you can go to Google Images and you can look up giraffe sleeping and you get these images like this and you kind of figure out what a croup is. And all of this can be done, and this is what he, today, and this is what he called the knowledge machine. He thought of this 20 years ago, this age of the knowledge machine, and here we are. And it strikes me that this is a really important moment to actually 
help people understand how to harness and leverage this knowledge machine. Um, as I mentioned a couple years ago, this is really just the beginning. Because if you look at you know five and ten years out in the future, everybody agrees that we're headed towards ubiquitous computing, ubiquitous communication, ubiquitous information, and unlimited speed about everything everywhere from anywhere on campus, right? And that means it's now ridiculously easy. This is actually a technical term from Sempak A, published this article about ten years ago. So it's now ridiculously easy to connect, organize, share, collect, collaborate, and publish with anybody, to anybody in the world. And it makes exams like this increasingly out of place. And it makes our whole way of thinking about education very different. So what I talked about a couple years ago is that we have to move people from simply being knowledgeable, knowing much stuff. Knowing much stuff is always going to be really important. But we also have to move them towards being knowledgeable, actually able to find, sort, analyze, and criticize new information and knowledge. And where my thinking has gone in the last two years is this realization that the more I talk about people being knowledgeable, a lot of people come out of these talks and they think, oh, okay, so give me a bunch of techniques and I will go help my students become more knowledgeable. Um, but it's really more than that. I think at the core of it is we have to help our students, whoever we're serving, our clients, become, have given them a sense of wonder. Because it's that sense of wonder that will turn on the knowledge machine. See, the thing about the knowledge machine that Seymour Capper talked about 20 years ago is that it only works with questions. If you don't have questions burning inside you that you want answered, that you will do anything to get an answer to, if you're not curious, if you're not courageous, like a courageous type of learner, you end up with really the world's largest distraction device. This is either the most amazing knowledge machine ever invented or the world's largest distraction device. And in my classroom, it's basically emerged as a distraction device because I teach in big classes like this, where they do this Facebook through their classes and they bring their laptop to class they don't work on class stuff. Um, we did a survey and we found that students complete only 49% of the readings assigned to them and they find only 26% relevant to their life, which is like a 74% failure rate on our part. They buy $100 textbooks they never open, they pay for classes they don't show up. But the kicker for me in my thinking about education was I realized that when I was going through school, that the turning point for me was when I had started having these questions that burned in my soul in a way that I couldn't let them go. And it, and it became, I became in that moment, like what some people now call a deep learner, right? Instead of just a strategic learner um, or a surface learner, I became a deep learner. So the questions really matter. And I stopped about midway through my first semester teaching to monitor the questions that they were asking, looking, hoping for those really deep questions. But unfortunately, there were questions like, how many points is this worth? How long is this paper going to be? What do we need to know for this test? And this is really important. I've, I've thought a lot about questions, and questions in this grand scheme of human history that I walked you through. If you think about the importance of questions throughout that time. Um, for one, if you think about, just, just go into your own mind and think about the moments that you were really into something. Like when you were really truly in it, really deeply learning, totally fascinated by something. And you'll notice that you weren't fascinated by having all the answers. You were fascinated probably by some mystery. Something seemed a little bit just outside of your knowledge and you were grasping for it. And that's what a question is like, right? You start posing questions and the best questions actually lead you on a quest, so to speak. I think it's nice with the word quest right there in the word question because the best questions 
actually have their answers become new questions. And that's the beauty of science, right? People who are uh, great scientists have this sense of they get the answer, but that's not it, right? And they know it's not the answer. It's, it's just a piece of the next question. And so we keep going on and on asking these questions. The second element of a, of a question is that when you when you pose a question, you're actually doing something really amazing. You're you're inviting connections. You are either in your own mind, where you're connecting different elements and different aspects of things you know, or you're reaching out to others and you are inviting a connection with that person. It must be the most amazing thing that humans do, right? To to actually come to the edge of what we know and then ask somebody else to join us in thinking through the rest of this. And, and you know, we, we argue a lot in anthropology about how we came down from the trees because it seems really dangerous to come down from the trees. I mean, this is a great mystery in anthropology, say, you know, three or four million years ago when we make that break and we start coming down from the trees. It, it just seems impossible that we can do it because we're, we're slow and we're we're small and we're uh, very vulnerable. But if we can coordinate and cooperate, we can do it. And the only way to coordinate and cooperate is to do essentially some prototype questions. Like essentially being able to coordinate across great space requires these questions. So questions, I think, are essential to us becoming who we are today. And then the last thing I'll mention is that humans, uh, when we ask questions, in all except 60 languages, and the rest of the 6,000 languages, are, we all raise our fists when we ask a question. And this, uh, John O'Hala out of Berkeley suggests that this actually connects to the universal frequency code, which you can find among most uh, uh, mammals as well as some birds, where they'll raise their fists to express kind of vulnerability and uh, kind of like a calling forth, like drawing you in. If you ever listen to the, the greetings of whales, for example, it's a very high pitch kind of sound is sort of a, a connection. It's a connection device. It's like sort of drawing the others in. The, the other alternative, though, is the growl, right? So you go you low pitch and you scare people off. So a dog, for example, will growl to tell you to back off, and it will raise its fist to tell you to come forward. It'll kind of do it. And this is seems to be captured in the question. So when we raise our fist, we raise our intonation of the question. We're actually showing people that we're embracing our vulnerability. These questions then allow you to sort of get really into something. You're on a quest. You're you're inviting connections with other people, and you're embracing your vulnerability. And if you do those three things, the question does all of those three things. Living in wonder is essentially living with questions, being okay with questions, accepting the questions, and you are in a sense connected. You're embracing your vulnerability, and you're on a quest. So that's ultimately what I think we want to do to create really powerful learners in today's world. So I want to just quickly tell you about my own experience with this. I actually started in this classroom and I was, I, I'm a small town kid from Nebraska, so I came into this classroom at Kansas State and it was anthropology, study of all humans and all kinds of places. And as a small town kid from Nebraska, getting bombarded with all this information about people from all over the world was kind of a, I mean it literally, literally sort of blew my mind apart. And I had to kind of piece it back together. And it left me with all kinds of questions that I couldn't answer in books. It left me with really deep questions about who I was and, and how, you know, how humans operated around the world, 
how different can humans be and those types of things. And I thought the only way to answer this for myself is just to go out there and see what the world is like. So when I graduated from K-State, I went to uh, New Guinea. I flew into the capital city here. And as I came into the capital city, I, you know, took this, I took a snapshot of that palm tree because that's a small town from Nebraska. That's a really big deal. Um, <laughs> then that morning, I decided I was going to go around and visit as many people as I could and just get to know people, just open myself up to people, invite connections, you know, all those things. So I put on my backpack and I walked out the front door. And the first two people I meet walking towards me, they say, "Hey, morning." Now they speak like pidgin English there, so. Hey, morning could mean uh, good morning, like good morning, like that's how you say good morning, or it could mean give me your money. And, uh, <laughs> and so, since I'm a small African kid from Nebraska, I assume that they mean well and that they just say good morning. So I I say morning, morning, and I you know try to slide past them, and they say no, not morning, morning, and they start tapping their pockets like this. Um, and I you know I'm still kind of on. I now know that they want money. But I decided I'm still going to play it down and just be like, morning, morning, and just slide right on by. But the guy steps in front of me and he pulls his jacket back and he pulls out this machete that's like two feet long. And I turn my back to them so that they flashes at me so it hit my backpack. So I turn my back and I just start running. And I get around this corner and fortunately around the corner there's all these people, wonderful people that I thought I would run into when I left that morning. And they chase these two guys off. And I walk straight to the airport. And so then I, I get to the airport and I'm looking up at the departure board and the departure board says the top departure is Brisbane. And I think, oh Brisbane, that would be great, you know, if, I don't know if you're familiar with Australia, but like east coast of Australia, gorgeous. Brisbane would be a great place for, you know, twenty two at the time, great place for a twenty two year old to spend their time, spend their summer. Um, but then I started looking down the list of departure board, all the other departures are places I've barely heard of, places I've just sort of heard about in books, you know, that very small villages throughout the beginning. And I realized that the answers to my questions were not in Brisbane, and they were somewhere down the list. And that, was, to me, was like a turning point in my life where I realized that it was questions that drive us, that can take us farther than we thought we might go. And so I took the next plane just anywhere really, but it wasn't Brisbane. And I went just further and further into the interior of New Guinea. And every place I went, I just thought, you know, let's just see what is next, you know, and just let's go get farther and farther out there. And so I just kept taking smaller and smaller planes until I was on a little plane flying into this airstrip here. And then I land here. And this is my greeting when I landed. And, uh, and then this, this is the place where once you're there, you're there because the plane only comes once every six weeks and that's weather permitting, right? So, so the plane leaves and then I'm back here again. And, and I decided I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna keep going. So at this point, the only mode of transportation you can do is walking. So I start walking and I start walking and I, you know, come across all these mountains and villages like this. These are places totally off the map at this point. Come past this guy, apparently, uh, you're not supposed to get this close to a passageway, but I'm a small cap in Nebraska, so I don't know this. And I come into this village here, and this house is where I would end up staying uh, for the first summer. And then I ended up coming back to this place uh, off and on for the next eight years. I spent just a little over two years in New Guinea. 
So these are, this is inside the house now, these are my key fears where I would say. And I'll just give you a sense of what it's like when you first arrive. So, so when I first arrived, I've been walking for two days, and I actually uh, collapsed up into, halfway into the second day, I collapsed, and I was, you know, I just didn't realize how hard it would be to carry a 40-pound backpack through the mountains of New Guinea. And so I was having like a dehydration problem, I started to green spots, and I collapsed. And fortunately, some, some people like, came by and, and helped me out. So then I come to this house, and I'm just barely, you know, conscious in a way. I mean, I'm really a mess. And all I can hear is blah, 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 because I don't understand the language yet, right? And then, but they did have a word that I understood, and that was white man. So I would hear blah, 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 white man, and then laughter. And I always, and I always thought that laughter would be something that's sort of a human, human nature, right? Like it's, it's, uh, there's nothing really cultural about it. But in, in, in the beginning, it was fairly cultural. Like there was something different about the way they laughed. They sort of laughed collectively. So it was like blah, 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 white man, and then I'll play the recording here for you. So they do like this collective laugh where they all synchronize and go, and so it's like sort of poking at you constantly, right? Um, and I, I'll give you a tour of, of the village. So as I sort of settled in, this is my, my uh, ended up being a guy who adopted me as, as his grandson. And he grows his own tarot, sweeps you know, bananas, they raise pigs, they harvest spiders, they will capture snakes. Snakes are a big deal, they're kind of a two-for-one deal, because after they after they eat, they get kind of lazy, and then you can cut them open and get the appetizer. And um, this this snake was actually found just about 100, 100 yards or so from where I was staying. And so I was looking around the side, and holes everywhere, and thinking, you know, there's there's uh, you know that snake had that family. You know, we just ate it, so revenge might be on their mind. I don't know. So, so I, I wrap myself up in my sleeping bag super tight. Um, but it's the tropics, and so in the middle of the night, the sleeping bag will come off me, and I have white bugs, bugs off me, all that stuff. But this night, I was especially vigilant, looking to you know, protect myself from these snakes. So I wrap myself up in the middle of the night, the sleeping bag comes off me, and I wake up that very night, and I can feel this thing laying across my chest, like this big around. And I managed to throw it off of me, but as I threw it, I woke with it, so I know I'm wrapped up in this thing somehow. So I managed to pin it down with my left hand, uh, but then I try to free my right arm, and I can't free my right arm. It's about this time I realized I've actually pinned down my own right arm. <laughs> and my arm had just fallen asleep and was across the <laughs> So, so there wasn't no thing. And, and then I'm like kind of explaining like why I'm wrestling with myself. Uh, and you know, all this time, like I'm, I'm eating with them, I'm really trying to be like them. I'm trying to go native. I mean, this is uh, sort of a new guinea. This is what an anthropologist does, well, participant observation, right? And so when I first arrived, this is actually just three nights after I first arrived. And you can see like what kind of chaos this is. This, this is a dance, like a local dance. And just, it's just like all over the place. And it's not like a performance where you sit down and you watch it. It's just rotating all around you. And you'll see like over the years, I started to kind of figure out what this was, but I only figured it out by actually participating. So there's me. And you'll notice, like, watch uh, how bad I am at this dance. Like, this looks like a really easy dance. You just kind of bounce like this, right? Um, but you'll see how bad I am at it. In fact, people would make fun of me to know when. I feel like I'm doing pretty well right now, right? But when you look at the back, you see how my tail feather doesn't bounce? 
And then Friday he got sick, and we're staying up late with him, just trying to comfort him. And then he, you know, passes over across that unimaginable gap. And you know, we're left there sobbing together and, and feeling this tremendous sense of vulnerability. How we're also vulnerable. How we're also proud. And I think that that is really the the birthplace of empathy. Like. Having a sense of shared vulnerability is the place where we can get a sense of, of connection with one another. And in our society, what we've done with technology, not just recently, but for several generations, is we've used technology to actually take the easy way out, disconnect from each other, to create boxes around ourselves. So from the very early days, we've used new technologies that allowed us to move faster or communicate faster to separate ourselves. We built boxes and we shopped in bigger and bigger boxes until we didn't even know the people we were shopping with or from. We then looked through these boxes to connect back to our society. And over time, we've just built more boxes and shopped in bigger boxes, and now we look through these boxes. By the year 2000, Robert Putnam was able to say we're only alone. It was just one of a number of statistical uh, markers that showed that our community is on the decline. Another one, really good one, was that uh, if you just take the number of people that any an average person can ask to help them move, that number has gone down as well. So another uh, theorist, Lydia de Couture, calls it the capsular civilization, where we live in capsules and then we put ourselves in other capsules, cars, that take us to our work capsules, and all the while we never really connect with anybody around us. And this has a pretty big effect on all of us. So if you think back to, say, the 1950s versus today. In the 1950s, you had Peter White talked about growing up in the 1950s. This is him in Kenya, some years later. But in the 1950s, he talked about how he was actually encouraged, not just allowed, but encouraged, to run around his neighborhood unsupervised. And then he later learned to ride a bike, so he could possibly go a little further. And then when he got into his teen years, he started hitchhiking. And he could actually hitchhike up to 100 miles a day and then be back by nighttime. And Peter White did all of this in the 1950s, even though Peter White was blind. He went on to be a great uh, journalist at the BBC. He talks about, you know, how important it was to have that freedom to explore in the 1950s, when it's totally gone now. So if you think about, you know, those things I just said, imagine like letting your kids run around your neighborhood unsupervised in a line. Like, I mean, it's one thing. Most parents don't have to do that at all anyway. But if they're blind, it's a whole other thing. Learning to ride a bike, learn to ride a bike. He didn't have the scars to prove it, but he was going to do it because everybody else was doing it. And then, as a blind kid, you know, 13 years old, blind, he was willing to put his trust in somebody who couldn't see to take him, you know, 100 miles and know that he's going to get back. So that's just a level of public trust that we can't imagine today. And it gives you a sense of what these guys are talking about, like Robert Potter and Lydia Nicotura. You know, you can now buy these leashes, right? I mean, and actually, uh, there's another study that showed that, that we now explore about 11% of the area that our parents explore. So each generation explores just 11% of the area that their parents explore. So now we have kids on leashes. I got a friend, uh, this is a friend of mine named Jenny. That's a real nice. Um, I don't know if you see the difference here. <laughs> and this affects all of us. So that we live in a different kind of world in which we are we spend a lot of our time assessing risk and as a, as a background of assessing risk of course our fears 
and behind that is actually a closing down of our openness to one another. We're not inviting connections. We're not getting this sense of wonder. We're actually numbing ourselves. As Renee Brown has pointed out, we are the most addicted, medicated, obese, in debt, and busy adult cohort of human history. She goes on to say that this is the way, these are all ways of numbing ourselves, and you cannot numb emotions selectively. So we can't numb ourselves with possibilities of pain and rejection without also numbing ourselves to the possibilities of joy and connection. So that takes us to this moment. And, you know, we're right here on the edge of the stage when you look at this kind of media environment. And this, when this media environment appeared in 2004, 2005, a lot of these technologies came out at that point, there was so much excitement. And I think there was so much excitement because people thought, okay, now we can start to recreate the communities that we've lost. And a lot of the excitement behind Web 2.0 was all about connecting and creating a global community, global sense of connection. So a lot of people started studying this, and one of the people who started studying this was an anthropologist at Columbia, Thomas de And he would actually send a bunch of his students into uh, junior highs and middle schools to see what was going on there, sort of see what this next generation is getting out of this new media environment. And he has a quote in his book about this um, that I thought was pretty telling. He says, in the midst of a fabulous array of historically unprecedented and utterly mind-boggling stimuli, whatever. <laughs> so this has got me thinking about it. What are the dynamics socially and culturally that are creating this dynamic of apathy and disengagement and numbing? And so let's start here. I'm going to call this a vicious cycle, the age of whatever. So let's start with the word whatever. Whatever is, um, it, this is I, I view this as sort of like the matter of fact uh, piece of the world. We, it, it's just a matter of fact that we live in a world that offers almost infinite choice in who you're going to be and what you're going to do. And that actually poses both a great deal of freedom, but also a great deal of responsibility, tremendous amount of responsibility to make that choice to figure out who you're going to be and what you're going to do. You know, along this whole walk that I showed you earlier, identity and recognition were basically givens. And now, you know, identity and recognition are not given. And you have to earn, and I, you have to choose an identity, you have to earn recognition. These are things become very challenging. So what most of us spend our time doing, most of our lives, we spend our time searching for ourselves, trying to figure out who we are, what's our role in the world, what's our place in it. And as we do this, we're doing it against the background of all these other decisions. So each time you make a choice, it's against the background of, of realizing you could have made other choices. And in many ways, the common response to doing that is actually to shut down those other choices. To start to lock in on something, and then just sort of not, not don't look to the left and right because you might realize you made a mistake. And that comes off as a sense of narcissism. Sometimes we start defending ourselves, even celebrating ourselves, Especially in young people, we often think of this as narcissism, but I think it's a pretty basic response to a world of this infinite choice and trying to just figure out who we are in this world of infinite choice. But that has a certain impact, not just individually, but when you look socially across the whole gamut of people, you see that while everybody's making their little choices, deciding who they're going to be, what they're going to do, and so on, not just that, but you know, sort of crafting their ideas and ideals, beliefs, values, we end up with fragmentation because everybody's choosing different ideas, ideals, beliefs, and values. And we end up in a situation where people have different um, beliefs and values across the board. This creates a sense of complexity, 
And as all of these things sort of fold into uh, a world in which it's very difficult to, to figure out what is meaningful, what's worthwhile, what's, you know, what I should be doing, and so on. So we end up with a loss of certainty, meaning, and a sense of disempowerment. So you come back to whatever, this world of infinite choice, and so on, and it feels overwhelming, and you sort of throw your hands up and say, whatever. And that's, to me, like this is a sense of the apathy I see among my students, is they just, it's a, a big part of it is just simply being overwhelmed. And the common response to being overwhelmed is to just say, Whatever. So the question is then, what do we do in our environments, all the different environments that we teach in, which are very diverse? Are we doing anything to address these core issues that can set people on their quest, that can give them a sense of wonder? And in my classroom, the answer is definitively no. You know, students are learning what they do. You can think about what they're learning sitting here. What they're learning is, of course, that the information is in the front of the room. And they're ultimately just simply learning to follow along. So this is a video we made a few years ago. And uh, all we did was we created a Google Doc. And I invited the students to crack the Google Doc with me. And it starts off with what's like being a student. And I just turned it loose, you know, all 200 of them. So this shows kind of how it was edited over time, students jumping in. And uh, you can see there's a few blank spots there. The blank spot are places where we needed statistics, so we had to survey ourselves to get the statistics. And that ended with this uh, video, which many of you have seen, and some of it I showed earlier in this little clip. You get a sense of what this is, what this is about. You get a sense of the failure that we've had in my situation. And clearly we need to do something about it. Even worse, though, is that there's a message being sent throughout all of education for the first, you know, 20 years of education. There's a certain message being sent, and that message is that to learn is to acquire information. And that message permeates all the developments that we've seen, the early developments in e-learning, for example, were all based on the premise that it's all about acquiring information. But we know that learning is about so much more than that. A lot of the best learning has to do with having an intellectual throwdown with yourself, challenging your bias, challenging your basic assumption, opening yourself up to, to other ideas, having more critical thinking, connected thinking, creative thinking, and ultimately being courageous as a learner. These are all things that are not being practiced in this room. So this room is saying information is scarce, and yet three billion people are connecting and collaborating in the air all around us right now, and it's accessible by any number of devices in our pockets. This room says we should trust authority for good information. The authorized information is beyond discussion. Ultimately, to obey the authority and follow along. And the tragedy of this is that these assumptions about learning permeate our society and end up sort of leaving with the students. And when they come back for training later in their life, they have to come with these same assumptions. What we need is we need to start changing those assumptions. So we need a space where wonder flourishes. And wonder is going to flourish where we feel inspired and safe to quest to invite connections and embrace our vulnerability, to do those things that question asking does. So I just let me quickly show you how bad we're doing at these things real quick, and then I'll show you some places where they're doing really good at these things. So here's some examples of doing poorly on this. So for example, you look at the word quest, and you think about are we are we getting students to really ask important questions, to think deeply, think critically, and so on? 
you might have seen the results of this book, Academically Adrift, in which they point out that after two years on a critical thinking assessment, 45% uh, of students show no improvement. I mean, it's, it's, critical thinking to me is like step one on a long journey of deep learning. You know, critical thinking is where it starts, but ultimately you go on to deeper problem solving, uh, creative thinking, all kinds of levels beyond critical thinking. We're not even getting to critical thinking with almost half of our students after two years. And after four years, 36% still show no improvement. So I mean, this is, people are right to start asking questions about, you know, what are we doing? Um, and the reason for this, though, is even more important. The author's point to the title of their book that's academically adrift. Most people simply just don't know what they're doing yet. They, they haven't figured it out, and they're just kind of drifting through school because they're supposed to be in school. Now, a lot of you don't have that same problem depending on what uh, environment you're in, but you might see, you might hear resonances of that type of problem because these, these ideas about learning carry with the students even after they leave. So here's an interesting uh, thing that I thought was really captured. This is Eric Bolton, who won about to the valedictorian on uh, at Georgia High School. And she says here, at, at her valedictorian speech, she says, so I wonder, why did I even want this uh, position? Sure, I earned it, but what will come of it? When I leave educational institutionalism, will I be successful or forever lost? I have no clue what I want to do with my life. I have no interest because I saw every subject of study as work, and I excelled at every subject just for the purpose of excelling, not learning. And quite frankly, now I'm scared. And that's your winner. You know, like that's the person who won in high school. And they come out with no interest and fear, which is exactly the opposite of wonder. You look at like inviting connections. How are we doing there? There's a lot of interesting things you could point to in this regard. I like uh, to look at David Hesking's work. David Hesking is a physics professor out of Arizona, and his students were getting about, you know, 80% on their physics exams, which is about right, you know, sort of just have an average opinion around 80%. Then uh, one of his colleagues came up with this exam that didn't have any formulas involved. It was really just about sort of thinking uh, in terms of physics and, and knowing how physics works. And so it's a question like this, where if you have two balls, two metal balls of the same size, but one weighs twice as much as the other, and you drop them from a two-story building, which one lands first? And students who, if you put a number in this problem, they immediately go to their formula line, and they pull out a formula, and they do the math on these things, and they figure it out. Uh, but without the numbers, people, the students flail, and only 40% of students get questions like this right. So you go from an 80% uh, score down to 40%, which is to say if these students were learning how to take physics classes, they weren't learning physics. They were learning how to take physics exams, not learning how to think, how to think in terms of physics. And so Eric Mazur out of Harvard uh, saw these results and he said, oh, that might be true out in Arizona, but I'm a Harvard, you know, and uh, he gave the exam to his Harvard students and he got the same results. So these are brilliant people out of Harvard still not thinking in terms of this, but they've learned how, these are strategic learners. They've strategically learned how to take a physics exam. They're not deep learners. They're not actually incorporating that into how they see the world and how they think about the world. That's a lost connection. And we see it in our school, just in the layout of our schools and the way that we think about school. So for example, 
you know, here's the university, this is the university I teach at. And what I hear is that constantly, and this is just the way it is, that apparently there's this thing called the real world that's somewhere outside of the university. Which is it's sort of strange to me that there could be this thing called the real world. You know, where are we? Apparently <laughs> not the real world. And then you go into the campus itself, and the campus itself, you know, there's uh, it's just a quick layout of so the campus. You have art here, and science here, and music here, and history here, engineering here, architecture here, anthropology here. And the methods of all of this is to say that anthropology is not engineering, it's not history, it's not architecture, it's not art, and so on. But we all know that any of the great questions that have bubbled up in our minds over the time, over our lives, probably require many of these disciplines to answer. And yet these are all sort of fractured and, and set apart. And in the meantime, of course, a lot of great questions require a good deal of play to figure these things out. Play is over here and over here, and then the real world somewhere over there. <laughs> so then we're then down to the last one, the most important one, is to embrace your vulnerability. And what I find in the environment that I teach in is that we don't we don't provide a space where this is encouraged at all. And one of the reasons why is because we have very high stakes exams that mean absolutely nothing in the grand scheme their lives, which is, they actually mean something only because of the score they get, but they're not at all interesting or challenging or uh, in, engaging them in higher order thinking. They look like this, and they have to look like this because you probably get a great panels. So, so we end up with a situation like this, and of course, because it's this high-stakes thing that doesn't mean anything to them, they just see it as a game. They start gaming it, and they'll gain it in many different ways. It may be that they train very quickly and just forget it later. That's one way to game it. But of course, they might also take it up a notch and they might do some cheating to get by it. And so it's pretty amazing to me that we have these two knowledge machines colliding. This great knowledge machine, three billion people connecting and collaborating there all around us. And then the knowledge machine in the classroom. And it's kind of really sad to see that this second knowledge machine is being leveraged in this way instead of in, uh, you know, in some way to augment the actual learning. So for example, find tens of thousands of videos about how to cheat on any exam, including this one, which is where you take off the Coca-Cola label, you scan it, and then change the, the ingredients to the answers, and you reprint it, and you just set your Coca-Cola bottle. You know, lots of different options, band-aid options, and so on. So now, let's turn the table here and look at a place where this actually works, where you actually do get a, a quest, a sense of connection, and a sense of uh, embracing your vulnerability. So I'll start um, with a little experiment I did in my own classroom. And it's first with this idea of creating a freedom to learn. This is an old phrase from Carl Rogers in the 1960s. He talks about creating authentic learning environments where people are doing deep learning and there really isn't any other option. There's no way to strategically get around the, the work. There's no way to just surf, surf along on the surface. And you create an environment where they have the freedom to engage very deeply. And that usually involves engaging their passions. So one of the things I did in a small class, I was able to sort of really get to know the students, and we sat around for a week or two, just trying to figure out what are you guys all really passionate about, what would be your dream project, and then we weaved together the projects with the curriculum so that it all fit together in this in this very tightly wound uh, piece. So the students are doing their own thing, following their passions, while also um, serving the curriculum as well. So the curriculum is actually a research methods class. So this allowed all the students to do uh, some, to exercise their methods in 
uh, doing something they actually wanted to do. We weaved all these together. We created a research schedule instead of a syllabus. And then the syllabus is on a wiki, so anybody can edit it. And what happens is that people are so excited about doing this project that the, the syllabus starts to grow. And it gets so big, we can't handle it anymore. So then students start breaking off and creating their own syllabi. So they start creating their own blogs and posting syllabi on the blog. This student was the first to do it, and she posts uh, four readings in five weeks. So that's, this is what she designed for herself. You know what happens when I design four readings in five weeks? Like, just total chaos, you know, uh, rebellion. But these students love it. They're so excited. In fact, her, her syllabus is actually called Get Excited, you know. And then other students follow suit, and so student after student starts assigning themselves four books in five weeks simply because they're really excited about this. In the end, I won't take you through all the, the pieces of it, um, but we do end up producing documentaries in this class that do really well. You know, sometimes we get millions of views. Our goal actually, and in the beginning, is to go to Sundance. We've never been to Sundance. But we have a lot of success with this kind of thing. But the real success are things like this. This is the time when I couldn't be in class. And uh, the student wrote here, uh, she says, it was one of the sweetest class periods I think I've ever been a part of. No teacher. It's crazy, right? It's actually really sweet. We had a whiteboard cover with spiral diagrams, lists, and connections. The ideas were all closing. And then, but my favorite part is down at the bottom here. She says, she starts to reflect on her learning. She says, we're always being shaped, always learning. What is learning? I'm learning right now, processing, learning how to communicate my thoughts, typing speed increasing. So, I asked her about this later. She said this was like a big turning point in her life where she had been essentially a strategic learner her whole life. She was very good at getting good grades, but she hadn't really learned anything. And this was like a big turning point where she really got into learning itself and she got really excited about it. And so I started looking for places where this was happening on a broader scale, like institutionally. And I found this place down the road from where I live. This was in Overland Park, Kansas. And this is a place called CAP. So these students go for a normal high school half a day, and then the, the next half of the day, they come into this space that actually feels a lot more like Google headquarters or YouTube headquarters. It feels like a startup, like something really exciting. And they have actually have a smoothie bar back behind them open all the time. Students sometimes are in little groups and in classes being mentored by uh, teachers. But oftentimes they're just milling about, talking to each other, making big plans. And they make really big plans. So these students here are designing a flight simulator. Uh, this student here has designed a down marker that has a laser rangefinder and a GPS device in the bottom of it that allows it to figure out how many yards it is to go without carrying the chain out each time. And this just goes on and on. So these, these kids are really on a quest. They really have a sense of purpose because it is guided by this goal that they have. And then you look at how it allows them to invite connections. So this, uh, this, this is uh, Hunter Browning here, another student there, 17 years old when this picture was taken. Uh, so he's 17 years old and he's decided he's going to create a car that runs on water. And this, of course, would disrupt a $900 billion industry if it's successful, right? This would be a really big deal. And so he's showing me how he thinks he can get this thing to work. And I'm just like, uh, you know, I'm just amazed by how much he knows. He just, and I, I stop him and I say, how do you know all this? And he says, well, basically I've taken every class in here twice. And so how, how is that? How do you do that? And so, well, so I took all the classes and I just keep going back to those teachers and just, you know, 
getting more and more mentorship and figuring these things out. And, uh, you know, and I said, well, how about, I mean, even English? Like, because English seemed outside of his realm. And he, he had told me that he, he didn't like English when he first came to CAP. And he said, he said, oh, yeah, especially English, because, you know, I'm starting a business and I can't write a fifth grader. So here he is, like, actually embracing all these different subjects and fields just because he's passionate about something. He found his passion and he's really going for it. What happens here in an environment like this is a, it's a switch that's greatly empowering. So instead of having the expert deliver the object of knowledge to the amateurs, as shown here in Parker Palmer's model, the traditional teaching model, we switch to what Parker Palmer calls for a circle of truth, where everybody is a knower, everybody's empowered as a knower, everybody's respected as a knower, and they're all helping each other learn while at the same time engaging with this living subject. It's not a dead object of knowledge, it's not a dead object collection of facts. It's a living subject, a living conversation that all of us as knowers come to, and we'll all know it in slightly different ways based on our own background. We'll all help each other know it better too by sharing what we know. This is what Eric Mazur realized at Harvard when he realized those students weren't learning actually physics. They were learning how to take physics exams. So he started posing really interesting questions where he knew students would go about half and half on their answers. And then he would have the students turn to each other and convince the other side that they were right. And what would happen in about five or ten minutes, the students who were right will convince the students who were wrong why they were wrong. And the students who were wrong will have learned a fundamental aspect of how physics works. Not just how to do a problem, but actually learn the concept. Because the best teachers in the room are the people who just learned it, not the professors at the front who's known it for several decades. They just don't have a grasp of the conceptual challenges of getting it. So he's had great results by letting the teachers teach each other, by empowering them as knowers and creating this network. And this network, of course, could go so much further. If you think about the fundamental difference between two people in your classroom or in your learning environment or wherever it is that you're teaching, one of whom you inspire to wonder, not, not just like give them the, what they're supposed to learn to pass their training or to go on to the next level, but actually give them a sense of wonder. And you project out 20 years between the person you give a sense of wonder and the person you don't. 20 years from now, the person who has a sense of wonder has all of this at their fingertips to harness and leverage and continually get better. And the other person just has this big distraction device. That's the fundamental difference that we, that we hope to create if we can create a sense of wonder. And that, the fundamental piece of this, the, the most important piece, is that we give them the capacity and the freedom to embrace their vulnerability, which really requires that we give space for the, this freedom to fail. That's what you see at CAPS most importantly, is that the failures are interesting in that it's not subjective. Like if, you, if your down marker doesn't work, if your flight simulator doesn't work, there's nothing subjective about that. It just doesn't work. It's instant feedback, and you instantly start trying to learn more to figure out what went wrong, how can I make it work. You know, uh, this is a great example. This is Patrick Cutlass, and he was sort of falling in his grade because he you know, he just wasn't stirred up anymore. He was typically an A or B student, but he started to slip down into the C range because he just wasn't passionate about anything. So then he comes to CAP and he realizes he can do some of the things he's passionate about. He's really interested in building games for app, uh, and apps and things like that for mobile devices. So he starts doing that at CAP. 
And this leads to all kinds of, of possibilities. Eventually, this company comes in and they want to hear, you know, the students' ideas for different apps that they could build. And then they would possibly fund these things. And so, uh, this company comes in and Patrick comes out with like 10 ideas. And this is what he says to me about this meeting. He says, he says, who is great? I hated all of them. Like, I mean, how, what kind of uh, person says that? This is a different kind of person. This is a different kind of student who embraces failure. Because right after he said it was great, I hated all of them. He says, because they gave me lots of great feedback, and I came back to them three months later with ideas that they loved. And then three months later, he, he actually gets, uh, he gets support from the company, ends up creating an app for Orangely, which is a kind of a regional oh, yogurt, wow. yogurt place. Yeah. And that creates a little gain for them. And, and that's, you know, that's how you learn from failure. And then there's Patrick Hufflis, uh, or sorry, this is, uh, Hunter Browning. Hunter Browning, he's, uh, you know, trying to create this car that runs on water. And somebody actually donates a Jeep Cherokee so he can try this thing out. He builds this little fuel cell. And, you know, mostly working on his own and, and getting help from, uh, teachers around there and stuff. He creates this little fuel cell that turns water into hydrogen and oxygen and then puts the hydrogen into the car, which should create combustion and off you go. So he gets this thing all set up, connects it, and tries to start the car and it won't start. And, you know, this is failure. But he's able to take this fuel cell and he connects it to a grill and he can now cook you some hot dogs and hamburgers on a couple gallons of water, which is pretty cheap fuel. <laughs> and uh, he's now starting a company called Green Grills, and we'll see how that, how that works. The real beauty of this, though, is even if Patrick and Hunter and all these people I talk about, ultimately just, you know, nothing comes of it. Like, nothing, like, you know, they don't create this, this wonderful business. They don't start making money off their startups. Something else has happened, and that is that they've shifted the whole game here. They've shifted it from simply searching for themselves to this broader recognition. It is a little bit, it will always be a little bit about trying to figure out who we are in the world. But it's also a little bit about realizing that collectively we make the world together. And we're all searching for ourselves and we're all contributing in some way by creating this world, by co-creating the world. And then it's less about defending and celebrating yourself, but actually embracing the sense of vulnerability, the sense of connection that you have with others. So that fragmentation doesn't look like fragmentation, it actually starts to look like possibilities. It looks like, you know, thank goodness people have different ideas and ideals, beliefs and values because it creates different perspectives. And you can invite connections among those perspectives to solve problems. Complexity doesn't look like complexity. It looks more like a, a musical piece, like a, a, a symphony that you can join in. And you don't sense this loss of meaning and power and certainty. Instead, you kind of have this double aspect of this sense of wonder the two aspects of it. On the one hand, you have this, this sense of celebrating the, what is the actual, like that sense of awe that wonder can give you. But you also want to pursue the possible. You know that this isn't it. Like it's amazing, but we can do better. And you end up pursuing the possible. So whatever isn't just the sense of throwing your hands up. It's a sense of, you know, let's do whatever it takes by whatever means necessary. And this I call the virtuous cycle of the age of whatever. I want to just uh, end with this visual of what wonder looks like. So I can give you, I give you something solid to hold on to. This is uh, Wellington Museum where it never snows. 
Uh, and then, uh, just about 18 months ago, it did. Now, only people are kind of stuck in it and surprised by it. So this guy's in a t-shirt. But look at his response. These people go into a state of wonder. The response isn't, you know, let's run into the stores, let's bundle up, let's zip our coats. It's, let's run out of the stores, let's embrace this moment. This is what wonder is like, right? It's, it's a sense of embrace, it's a sense of reconnecting with the world, reconnecting with each other. Wonder is to be comfort, to be comfortable even when you're uncomfortable. In fact, to sort of embrace that discomfort just for the feeling of it, because it's such a precious feeling. And most of the people who live in wonder like have this kind of sense of like it's a little bit an uneasy feeling of sorts. It's both full of awe and fascination, but also you want to know more. So you turn to know more. And these two these two sides of wonder can actually feed off each other. So we say that you wonder about you, you can be in wonder or you can wonder about something. And these two things feed into each other, so it's like you're always being reincarnated and like getting in. start seeing connections where other people might not see connections. You start having a sense of that everything matters, like even the little things, you start noticing things more. And to me, this is like a great gift that we can give our students, no matter where they are in their lives. It's the necessary gift, really. If you think about all these steps we've taken in the last 12,000 years, and you look at the next step, I mean, a sense of wonder is absolutely essential for us to make it through that next step. And I want to just be clear about what I mean by wonder in one aspect. I think when you see the video, you might think, you know, it's all about an experience. It's all about, you know, snowing in, in, in uh, Wellington, that kind of thing, it's like, wow, amazing, it never happened. Or you might go to the Grand Canyon to get that experience of wonder. But wonder isn't just about experiencing the extraordinary. Wonder can also be seen as a capacity, something that can be nurtured, something that can get better. And in that sense, it's not unlike love. We make the same mistake with love that we make about wonder. We think of love also as an experience quite often. And only as we get older, we start to realize that love is something that you do, it's also a capacity. You can get better at it, you can practice it. And your life gets richer because of it. And wonder is the same way. It's not just about experiencing wonder and you know doing these amazing things that experience wonder. But you can also just lift your capacity for wonder, honor the ordinary, and suddenly the whole world all around you kind of opens up in a very amazing kind of way. And I think that's ultimately what we can give our students, regardless of age, regardless of their lives. That's the great gift that we owe them. Thanks.